going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning. Lots of work in Acts recently. I don't think I've ever preached the book of Acts all at once ever this much before. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be beginning in verse uh, 22, passage that may be familiar to you, a story of Paul. Uh, I'm excited for what we have today, a little bit different. We're going to talk about a, a few unique things uh, that I'm excited for. I hope the sermon hope the sermon last week left you with some questions. I hope it left you thinking. Uh, I know I felt challenged by the, the topic and the material and... Uh, I think a lot of the times my job is to send you home with more questions than answers. Sometimes those are the most effective sermons. But hopefully today we'll give ourselves a little bit of a break from that and be a little more concrete. We'll see. Uh, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So we have this passage. You've probably heard it before. We've read it. We talk about it. It's this passage where Paul preaches the gospel to an entirely new group and classification of people. He's ministering cross-culturally in many ways. It is, it is mission and missionary oriented work that he's he's we get this picture that stands in contrast to most of what we have in the new testament which is jesus preaching to his fellow jews of how do we communicate the gospel to people that don't think or believe or act the way we do which is of course a common problem for us even today both in 
overseas and global missions and going to countries that are culturally and economically vastly different from, from what we are, but also in our local communities. How do we communicate the gospel to a culture that year by year has values that at least appear very different from our own? How do we communicate that? How do we begin those conversations? So today, as we look to learn from Paul, contrary to what usually when we're learning from Paul, we're learning theology, right? John or Paul is teaching us about God. He's giving us understanding and wisdom and language to use and, and understanding who God is. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different and learn from Paul how we can more effectively share the gospel with the world around us. Now, when you read through this passage, it's apparent very quickly some of the tools that Paul uses. Uh, primarily that he finds a way to relate the gospel to the beliefs, the lives, the circumstances of the audience to whom he is speaking. Right, And we have this story of Paul walking through, and, and, and just to, to give the backdrop a little bit, Paul ends up in Athens, he's kind of hanging out there, he's waiting for some other things to happen, and he's planning to meet up with some other people. Uh, it says while he was waiting for them in Athens, in verse 16, um, he sees all of these idols within the city, and he goes into the synagogue, which is him ministering to the other Jews, and he's speaking to them there, and he just starts having these conversations, and they end up bringing him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was the building in Athens where all of the philosophers and religious uh, members of society would gather to, to converse with one another, to debate, to argue, to talk about philosophy and religion and their beliefs and all of these things. It was the, it was the university. It was the open forum. Uh, you've probably read and learned about a lot of this in school growing up. So they bring him there. They say, you've got something worth listening to. And even if we don't believe it, it's something that's worth arguing with, which for them was just as important. Uh, finding something worth arguing with was, was beneficial to them. So they bring Paul up, and he's in the middle of this Areopagus, right? And then we get this picture of, of Paul. He sees this altar to an unknown God, and he kind of grabs it quickly as a sermon illustration and uses that as a way to establish some credibility with these Athenians. But what we'll discover, if we look into this a little more closely, is that the depth of Paul's connection with the Athenians is far deeper than just him happening to notice something on his way into this temple. So I did some research on this because we have these two these two quotes. If we look at verse 28, it says, In him we live and move and have our being, and this other quote, for we are indeed his offspring. And I'd never really read much about those quotes before, so I got online and I just started to research them and figure out where they came from. Now, before too long, I stumbled across a name, which is actually, I went back and realized it's in the footnotes of my Bible, but it's the name Epimenides. Everybody knows that name, right? If anybody knows that name, I'll be pleasantly surprised. Epimenides was a Greek philosopher that lived in about 500 BC. 
he was one of the founding fathers of Greek philosophy. So we all know Plato and Aristotle and, and right, those are the guys that we all remember. And Epimenides was one of the philosophers that got things going before Plato and Aristotle. Uh, he was known among the people as a prophet, as a seer, as a man of wisdom and understanding. Uh, he was actually a, a good friend of the mathematician Pythagoras. A lot of people believe that he was a religious leader to Pythagoras. So if you remember the Pythagorean theorem, a squared, B squared, the triangles. I know I'm like I'm bringing up trauma for everybody of going back to high school math. So this is who this guy was. And so I began to read, and the more I read about him, the more I realized the depth of the connection to this man in this passage. Now, we don't really have any of Epimenides' actual writings. We have a lot of writings about him. Everything we know about him is just shrouded in legend and probably exaggerations, and it's, it's all this sort of thing, but... But he was a very, very famous philosopher. Now, here's the story. Here's the important story about Epimenides. Epimenides was, first of all, a follower of Zeus, and almost exclusively to the point where many ancient philosophers saw him as nearly monotheistic. So, first of all, we see, as, as we begin to, to look at how Paul brings this guy into this passage, he picks a philosopher, from, of, of all of the philosophers in all of Greece, Paul picks the one who was closest to monotheism. He picks the one that was closest to discovering who the one true God actually was. And he brings him up, so if he's starting there, he has as little ground to cover as possible to make the jump from the gods of the Greeks to the God of the Jews, Yahweh, the one true God, the creator of the universe. So here's the cool story about Epimenides. There was a time when the city of Athens was undergoing a plague and people were getting sick and people were dying and they couldn't figure out what to do about it. So they got together and they sent out for this famous, wise, supposedly powerful man, Epimenides, and they put him on a ship and they brought him into Athens to try to fix their problem. Now, we believe he probably made some civil engineering changes. He probably helped with their uh, disposal of waste and trash, for example, which probably had a little something to do with things getting better. But that's not the part of the story that the Greeks like to tell. What they tell is this story, that Epimenides went to the Areopagus, where our story takes place. And he called a bunch of, of servants and, and leaders from, from the Oropagus to him. And he had them get a bunch of white and black sheep. And he sent them out and he would send one sheep with two men and a knife. And what they did was they would follow the sheep around the city. And at whatever point the sheep laid down, the men would come upon the sheep. They would kill it and they would sacrifice it in that spot. And his reasoning was... His belief was that there were unknown gods within the city of Athens, that the people were not worshiping, and because they were not worshiping these gods, the gods were angry and were bringing this plague. And so when the sheep laid down, it was because there was a god that was the patron god of that spot that needed to be appeased. So they, the sheep would go and they would lay down. And if I'm the sheep, by the end I'm saying, keep walking, keep walking. 
The sheep would lay down and they would sacrifice it in that spot to that God. And then after they did that, according to the legend, all of the disease went away. And in every one of those spots, they built an altar as a tribute to whatever God it was in that place that they had not been worshiping. Both as a remembrance of this time and this very important, I mean, it saved the city of Athens. Um, and, and again, there's, no one knows this for sure, but it was after that time that the city of Athens really began to, to flourish. And some people attribute that to Epimenides. And so that's where these altars came from. They weren't random. It wasn't just to be sure, because I've heard that said before, that, that it wasn't that they were just so antsy about it that they made altars to unknown gods just to cover their bases. That was a specific to them historical occurrence that led to them making these altars. And they were all in specific places for that reason. That's what Epimenides said. That's what he did. What's interesting is if you look through the writings of Epimenides, which there aren't many, there are fragments, there are quotations, one of the things he says is he's talking about Zeus, and he says in it, in him we live and move and have our being. That line in our text, verse 28, is a direct quotation of Epimenides. Paul actually quotes this guy again in Titus. He talks about, uh, there's a verse where he talks about Cretans being, uh, being, being liars and full of deceit, which is a famous paradox of Epimenides, who himself was from Crete. And that was a famous thing that philosophers used to debate. So we actually have two passages in the New Testament where Paul quotes this guy Epimenides. Now here's why that's important. When Paul walked through and he saw those altars to an unknown God, if he knew Epimenides well enough that he could quote him word for word on the fly in front of people, doesn't that tell us a little bit of Paul's understanding of Greek philosophy? Right? That, that this wasn't random. Paul didn't walk in saying, what am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to say? These guys are so smart. They're so wise. You know, this. How am I going to, oh, look, there's this altar to an unknown God. Uh, I can use that and I can go here. It wasn't a panic sermon illustration. It wasn't something he saw by chance on the way in. And he kind of presents it that way, though, doesn't he? The way he talks. He, he presents, he says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, right? He kind of plays it off as if he was seeing it for the first time, but the reality is he knew what it was all about. He was very careful in who he chose to quote. And so everything in this passage relates back to this man, Epimenides, who was as close as a Greek philosopher probably ever came to understanding the true nature of the God that we serve and that we know. And even going back, if you once you know that story, right, you look at the rest of the language Paul uses in verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him as the sheep feeling their way around the city, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. 
And then he, he continues, and he also quotes a philosopher named Eridus, uh, when he says, for we are indeed his offspring, and the stories about Eridus aren't nearly as cool as the stories about Epimenides, so I won't share them. But, and in reality, I don't see anybody sleeping, and I've talked about one Greek philosopher, and you're all still awake, and I'm not going to push my luck. But then he takes another and said, again, your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Speaking again of Zeus, this idea that Zeus was, was all throughout the world. And then he says, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Basically saying, look, if we're the offspring of the one true creator, and maybe you're referring to him as Zeus because that's what you understand. I'm here to tell you he has a different name and he's revealed himself. But if you believe, if your philosophy, if your thought, if your study has led you to a belief that we are the children of whoever it was that created and is all-powerful, why would we look like this and he looks like gold? Why would we be able to move and he stays still? It gives this whole teaching. He connects with the Athenian philosophers. He knows that their thinking is wrong. He, he knows that these guys have spent hundreds of years just constantly talking and talking and talking about the nature of the world and how it works and, and what it means to be good and what is the purpose of life and, and what does is, what is the supernatural look like, what does the spiritual look like. And, and after those hundreds of years and millions of hours of just sitting and talking all day after day after day, they still have so many wrong and weird and crazy ideas about the world that after all that time, they're still so far away but he doesn't go in telling them that they're wrong. He opens by going in and saying, I perceive in every way that you are very religious. Which actually, interestingly enough, came across exactly the same in Greek as it comes across today. Because if I walked up to any one of you and said, you're very religious, you might wonder how you should take that, right? Because it could go one way or the other. As you're pastor, maybe I'm saying I really appreciate how dedicated you are to the faith and to our church, and I see that. But I also could mean you're really, really focused on the wrong things, right? When we call someone very religious, it could be a negative thing. And that was the same in Greek. The word was ambiguous. Now, probably for these Greeks, that would be seen as a positive. Certainly for the Pharisees, it would be seen as a positive to be considered religious because they believed that the more they did and the better they did, the holier they were. We as Christians, of course, have a different perspective. We know that if we are being described as religious, then perhaps we're a little too focused on doing the right things. So these men, like the Pharisees, probably took that in a positive way. He starts out on the right foot with them, right? He gives them what would most likely be perceived as a compliment before going into his discussion. So he comes in and he compliments them, although it might have been a bit of a subversive compliment because their religion wasn't getting them anywhere. And then he... What's the second thing he does? He shows them that he sees them. He sees 
their religion. He sees what they're doing. He sees their understanding. And then he continues by saying, I see this in you. I understand this about your life and what you believe. Here's how it connects to what I believe. And over the course of this, shows them carefully and cautiously how there is something greater and higher and above what they believe. Continuously connecting it with them. Now, here's the thing. We know, lost my water bottle. We know that at the end of this, it was fruitful. We know that at the end of this, and this is why I read the extra couple of verses, there were some who believed. And we know from our evangelism and our culture that it's difficult to change someone's entire view of their religion in one conversation. Right? It was one thing for the Jews who were looking forward to the Messiah. Making Jewish converts to Christianity, which I would not even use the term converts there, right? When we're talking about the first century, it's the same religion. It's just they were Jesus and the disciples in the early church were convincing the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah they were looking for. That was what they were being convinced of. The people here are being convinced to leave behind everything that they've believed and been taught for their entire lives. And we know, if you've ever had any of those conversations, that that typically does not happen in a day or two. It typically does not happen in one conversation. And so this was fruitful. And I believe there's a lot that we can learn about this. As I was reading this and as I was reflecting on this and as I was picturing it this week, I was reminded of a scene from the Chosen TV series. And uh, we're going to watch it here in just a, just a moment. But I thought about especially how Paul, first of all, calls us to imitate him as he imitates Christ. And so the way that Paul did things, the way he structured his life, was he tried to do things the way Jesus did them. And so the scene that we're about to watch, it is a fictional scene. Okay, everything, I think just about everything in what we're going to watch is not in the Bible. Right? doesn't mean it's bad, it's just, I'm just being upfront. This is, this is a scene that's not based on scripture. This is a, well, it's not quoting scripture. It's a scene that tries to explore, which again I think is an important thing for us to do, what it would have looked like had Jesus been teaching to a mixed crowd. And because we know that Paul imitated Christ, what I see in this scene is a very good depiction of what's happening in Acts 17. That Jesus in this scene reflects what Paul does in his strategies and his tone and the way he speaks and the way he connects with people. Now you can choose for yourself, you can decide for yourself, and I'm fine with that, but it's a great exercise, I believe, in trying to picture, and if nothing else, it paints a great picture of what the relationship between Jews and Greeks was like. So in, in, the, in the scene, there's going to be a bunch of people sitting down. On the far right, from the camera's point of view, there is a Jewish leader from the local community. Next to him, there's a Greek man. Uh, next to him, there is a woman from uh, the Middle East. And then there's a couple other groups of people. Uh, situation is, a couple disciples went up to 
the uh, Decapolis, which is a Greek area, a Gentile area. They preached to some Jews, some Gentiles overheard. It called a big stir. Everybody got mad and started fighting each other. And then Jesus went up to sort of try and fix the situation. So take a look at this. And as we're looking at it, think about who in this scene looks like what groups of people today. Now, what is your name? Fatia. She is Nabatia. I didn't ask her ethnicity. Fatia, help us all understand what exactly has happened in this region. Your students preached the Nave about a kingdom that entranced many from this region visiting the city, including the Augur of Abila, who stopped performing his ceremonial and civic duties upon returning to the capitalists. Work came to a standstill. Construction was halted. Merchants could not get permits and wells went undug. So you're telling me that the region was paralyzed by the absence of one man? What Fatia did not say is that the merchants who could not get permits hijacked a caravan of exports from my Syro-Phoenician brothers. We had a deal in place that you reneged. What is your name? Animus. I'm a bronze caster. You appear to be in good health and strength. You're well-dressed in Athenian blue. It matches your eyes. Tell me, Hermes, what is your plight? I bought a plot of land in the north. I needed a reading of the auspices to determine the gods' favorability regarding construction of a new casting facility. Hmm. Sounds so simple. But because of what those Jews said... Do not associate these people with our order. You stood by as reports of their teaching poisoned the mind. You don't know what we have and haven't done, Fatya. We strenuously disavow all of their teachings. We have been punished for crimes we did not commit. Andrew, Philip, Rabbi, did you direct your teaching to Jewish citizens? Yes. As you instructed. But the auger from Abila overheard and was moved. Hmm. Aramis, what would the auger's reading have told you? Whether they were good or bad omens. Doesn't that sound absurd? You would call us absurd? Jew? Your laws about food and purity are laughable. What? Whoa, 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 whoa. Sit down, brothers. The last thing these people need is thunder. How can I build a business without knowing where the gods want me to build? Hmm? Nazarene, if you are any sort of self-respecting rabbi, you will not dignify that question with an answer. Your people's condescension is unending. Oh, and there's never been a note of condescension in your voice, Fatia? Let's stay on topic. Hmm? So here we have Aramis, paralyzed by fear that his business ambitions might not be sanctioned by the gods of his religion. How could this lead to violence? The ogre's flagrant rebellion undermined Greek authority. And yet the Jewish community was targeted in a brutal wave of attacks. My people were hard as hit for not having paperwork with Rome. And you turned to crime! Out of desperation! That is why I brought Andrew and Philip back to clarify their message. They told the story about hospitality. But for some reason, Jews and Arabs came to blows over it. The people originally invited to the banquet in your story had perfectly legitimate reasons for not coming. Which is another way of saying some people think the old way of doing things is better. Look to the ancient roads where the good way is and walk in it. You know your prophets? Of course I do. What about Isaiah? Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. Do not pit prophets against each other, especially on this issue. The people on the highways and hedges 
Surely you're not referring to the Gentiles. You sound like you don't want us to come to the banquet. The meaning of... Thankfully, the clip stops there, or else I'd just sit and watch the rest of the episode. Now, I don't know what stood out to you within that, but there were a few things that stood out to me, especially as I reflected on Acts 17 and thought about what it might look like to see what Paul was doing and also to reflect on what Paul could have done differently. One of the things that stood out to me the most in this was when the Jewish man on the right is telling Jesus that if he's any sort of self-respecting rabbi, that he wouldn't dignify the question with an answer, right? Because knowing what he knew of God, he knew how absurd it was. Now, what's interesting is the man wasn't wrong. It is absurd, if you understand who the God of the universe is, to think that you need to have a reading of omens to figure out whether or not you can build in and all of that. It's wrong. It doesn't need to happen. The fact that this man was losing incredible amounts of money by not beginning and building his business is, it seems silly, right? It but Jesus didn't laugh at the man. Jesus who, and again, we want to be careful, this isn't scripture, but, but Jesus who is the author of everything, who is the author, the creator of that plot of land that they were discussing, who sees all, who knows, he's divine, the author of everything, more than any of us possibly could, Jesus understood how wrong the man's thinking was. And yet, he took the time to sit and understand. All right. That's what really stood out to me in this clip, was how much time Jesus spent trying to understand this man. And of course, Scripture tells us that Jesus knows what's in the heart of man, and yet we see him throughout Scripture, right? Asking questions that he could have already known the answer to. He asks the crippled man at the Bethesda pool if he wants to get well, for example. He enters into discussion. Because Jesus, throughout the New Testament, sees discussion with people not as a way to get information that he needs, because he has other ways of getting the information. He sees it as a way to connect with people. And in the same way, Paul could have gone into this passage, into this story, opening up with saying everything that the Athenians were doing wrong. And in so doing, would have had as much a chance of convincing them to follow God as the Jewish man on the right in this clip would have had. Which, first of all, that man made it very clear he wanted nothing to do with the Gentiles, but even if he changed his mind about that, do you think he would have been able to minister in any way to the others that were sitting around him? Now, unfortunately... I also see a reflection of that in a lot of people within the church today. That disdain for the other side. 
We have to work really, really hard, church, to gain any kind of an audience with non-believers in our country and in our world. With everything, when, when we live in a country where everyone, everyone has heard the name of Jesus, almost everyone, if you go to anyone you meet and ask them if they know who Jesus is, they will probably say that they do. Now, of course, we believe that they don't. We, we believe that if they did have a true and full understanding of who Jesus really is, that they would put their faith in him. But they believe they know all they need to know about who Jesus is. And what that means is when we go to them, and, and if you just walk up to someone and say, hey, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, they're going to say, no, thank you. I've already heard everything I need to know. When we get an opportunity to genuinely and authentically share the gospel with non-believers, that is a rare, that is a rare circumstance and privilege for us. Because it's not easy to come by in our country. And when we do have those doors begin to open, and we use condescension, when we use mockery, of the beliefs of our world, that door slams shut in a moment. I hope someday, I hope someday I go more than six months without hearing someone from a pulpit make a joke about the letters L-G-B-T-N-M-O-P. That hasn't happened in a while. Because the reality is, it doesn't matter if we're right. It doesn't matter how good our theology is. It doesn't matter how well we know the prophets or the scriptures. If we aren't acting with kindness, if we aren't trying to connect with other people. If we aren't willing to try to understand what it is they believe, we can never, we can never preach to them. It was Paul's understanding of Greek philosophy that enabled him to preach to the Athenians. Because he knew, he knew which philosophers to quote he knew which ideas to bring up that would get him as close to the people as possible. The question for us believers is, if we're people who say that we want to impact the world, how closely have we studied it? How closely have we studied the beliefs that the world holds that seem laughable to us? The things that for us, they seem so easy to dismiss, they seem so wrong, they seem so, so juvenile, they seem so perhaps even bizarre. Have we spent time, like Paul did, developing an understanding so that we can go to the people in our world and say, I see you are people who value love. Let me show you what I understand of it. I see that you are people who value community and belonging. Let me tell you 
what my God says about true community and belonging. It's very difficult for people to listen to the things we have to say to them if they feel like we don't even see them. The first step, when we want to reach the world, when we want to share the gospel, the first step is not a sermon. The first step is a handshake. It's a question. It's tell me about yourself. Let me learn about you because you're important. And even if I feel like I have all of the answers to the questions that you're asking, even if I I believe it would be so simple for you to turn things around in your life, let me see your struggles, let me see your pain, let me understand why your life has been so difficult. And ultimately, that's what Paul shows us. He takes the time to understand these people and what they believe. So he knows how to connect. He knows what he has in common. He knows what ideas are already planted, what what they already value. To build on that and to fill in the gaps to answer the questions that are unanswered by the religion of these men. And that's so important. There have been hundreds of books written, probably thousands of books, on evangelism, on how to reach our world, and strategies and practices and this and that. There's probably nothing wrong with most of those, but... I love that Paul here in Acts gives us some very simple things to do. Yet again, my favorite prayer is this, God give us eyes to see. God give us eyes to see. And that's exactly what this is. God give me eyes to see the people that I interact with on a daily basis, to see their hurts, their pains, their joys, to see who they are. Let's pray. And then Denise is going to come with our announcements. Father, that is our prayer this morning. Lord, open our eyes to see a world that's broken and hurting. And God, it is hard for us to look at the world and see anything other than enemies. But God, we have to admit If we study your word, that's not really how you look at people. And we can go to the Old Testament and we can pull verses from a political context in an Old Testament paradigm, but there were were no enemies that you, you set up in the New Testament. As Jesus says, you walked the earth, you saw only lost sheep. And while it may be simple to think about that intellectually, it's a lot more difficult to put it into practice. It's easy for us to see enemies and those that attack us, that attack what we believe, that attack our institutions, that perhaps even want to 
attack our freedoms, it's hard to see anything but enemies. Which is why, Lord, we need your eyes. We need sight that goes beyond what we can see physically, what we can do of our own strength. May we, like Paul, seek to connect genuinely with the lost sheep of this world, with the broken people around us. May we as your church not belittle them. May we never mock people for the wounds inflicted by sin that they carry. But may we be those who are ready with a bandage, who are ready with healing, who are ready with love, ready to recognize the hurt and the pain. And when the time is right, and when you lead, and when a heart is prepared, only then do we present your gospel and your truth when it can be effective to save and renew and bring new life. Lord, may we be a patient church as much as we are an active church to do your work in the world. We love you, God, and we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.